I know we're each excited to be able to gather on this Sunday afternoon. Having felt so many blessings from the beneficial and marvelous hand of God this day, the opportunity to gather in a peaceful hour and the tranquility of this moment, and to do so with the excitement and eagerness in our heart, to offer worship unto the God who has loved us so much to send His Son to die for us. We do have redemption through the blood of Christ, even the forgiveness of sins, to borrow the wording of Ephesians 1 verse 7. And so as we study for the next few moments this afternoon, I hope we can give some thought to a lesson I've entitled simply, Relativism. That may be a term somewhat unfamiliar to you, but I'm, I feel very sure it's a topic, a very subject with which we're all familiar by way of its application. We just might not have known that that was a term used to describe it. Relativism. These introductory thoughts might well be in order as you think with me about where we shall end up moving in this lesson. You and I so easily appreciate the fact that, of course, the church is to be a marvelous matter of glorifying God. Remember the wording with me. There is an anthem that occurs near the close of Ephesians chapter 3, an anthem that concludes like this, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. That's a magnificent statement. You notice in it, we were told that through Christ, the church brings glory to God. You and I are the very ones through whom God is principally glorified on earth today. The world's not going to glorify Him. Those who are not His servants surely are not going to glorify Him, but you and I are His servants. And Paul said that as the church, we are the ones to direct glory to God. No wonder in light of that, you'll notice some of these issues. We understand on the one hand that the church by its very nature is to glorify God, but we also know that we are human beings. We come with differing backgrounds, differing perspectives, differing viewpoints on things. And so it is that we might then appreciate the existence of potential problems in the church. We wrestle to some degree with that, do we not? We know on the one hand we're to glorify God, so how do we handle problems? How do we deal with them in a way such that the problems do not distract us from being the proper mechanisms for glorifying God? No wonder as you look at, then at some of these matters. Some of the problems over the years that the church has faced have been rather minor. That is to say, they caused a brief ruffle, if you please, but they soon died away and no one hardly even today remembers them. Other problems, though, have been very major. They have ultimately led to divisions and splits and major grievances and difficulties, and those kinds of problems, in fact, have often perhaps challenged the faith of many. We certainly must think twice about allowing ourselves to cause any divisions and problems like that. As you close that slide with me, I would ask that we spend the time tonight developing, thinking about an issue that the church faces today, an issue that is no small concern and no small issue of problem. It has already begun to cause major difficulties in a number of congregations around our land and likely has been arguably something significantly involved in it now for decades. But we are beginning to hear it more and this name I've chosen tonight has been coined to describe much of these issues. I am not presenting this lesson tonight because I think we have this problem here. As far as I know, we do not. 
But it is a matter that other congregations are facing. It is an issue that is beginning to rise in far more noteworthy ways. The day may come that you and I have friends or neighbors or family members who face it. And the day may come you and I have to more directly face it head on in one way or another. Relativism. The last three letters of that word, I-S-M. You know that that's a suffix in English that has to do with a philosophy, a way of thinking, a description of a category of one kind or another. You're familiar with things like premillennialism, that teaching that goes with premillennial dogma. We're familiar with existentialism or other isms. We aren't interested in any of them tonight. We're interested in relativism. Once we begin to develop it, we all will easily understand the nature behind it. Let's begin with a definition. I told you it would be familiar to you. When you think about the word relativism, all it highlights is the following. It's merely that position that upholds the following conclusion, that all points of view are equally valid, and furthermore, that all truth is relative to the individual. No one, according to this idea at least, has any right of claiming any more basis of rightness than anybody else. What one person thinks is just as valid as any other. What one person perceives or views is just as acceptable as any other. And that is supposed to hold in each arena, including religion. I promised you that would sound familiar. Have you ever heard someone say, well, that's the way you see it. I'll worship God the way I want. We'll all just follow our own pathway to heaven. Really? Sounds like relativism to me. I would be quick to say that everyone's opinion is just as good as anyone else's. But is it true that there is only truth in as much as a person is basis for that? Is there a truth that stands beyond your thinking or mine? Is there an absoluteness that goes beyond what a person may believe or think? That's certainly something that you and I should be well aware of. And thankfully the Word of God expresses that fully and completely. Again, think about how often you may have heard someone say, There are no absolute truths. That's the way I see it. You see it your way, and we'll both be happy with that. Or someone might say, you worship God the way you see fit. I'll do it the way I see fit, and all of us will be acceptable to the same God. That's a dangerous way of thinking. Let us, in fact, develop that tonight under the banner, under the heading of relativism. To do that, at the very bottom of the slide, let me just quickly comment, this is now not to be the major focus of our lesson this evening, but just ponder with me for a moment the way that some of these issues have begun to develop themselves within the church. What about the nature of baptism? I suppose that for many individuals such as you and I, there is simply no reason to discuss much the essentiality of baptism because the Lord said it's essential. But there are others of our day and time who have begun to reason as follows. Is it possible to consider baptism as just a matter relating to the culture of that day? After all, there were individuals who were coming out of the Jewish background of the Old Testament and they recognized the importance of washings. Well, as Gentiles, we don't see the importance of washings and so maybe everyone doesn't need to be baptized. Some might feel that way and begin to develop appreciations toward that goal. 
do you begin to see the idea? And therefore they come to realize, well, you think baptism is important. I happen not to think so, some might say. But after all, doesn't God accept all of us? Look at another one. What about the taking of the Lord's Supper? You and I, based upon the absolute foundation of the biblical examples of the New Testament, recognize the first day of the week, Acts 20 verse 7, is that place and that time in which we see the significance of the observance of the Lord's Supper. We have no authority for it any other day but others. Well, this person works on Sunday, so why can't we offer to him the Lord's Supper on a Monday night? Or what about a Friday afternoon? You notice with me, we're now asking, so are we at liberty to change or reschedule any time we see fit just because that seems to fit our observations? On the bottom of that slide, I would ask you to think about these two. And these are beginning to gain greater ascendancy, aren't they? The mechanical instruments of music and worship. I suppose there is no single topic that seems to be more quickly announced and more quickly discussed than that one. When you and I enter into conversation with some who, of course, see things very differently, well, that's just the way you see it. We enjoy the instruments because they help me worship better. We're excited to have them, and we approve of them, so they tell us. Notice they say, well, that's the way you see it. We see it differently. They are relegating it to a matter only of somebody's opinion and no more. Relativism is the basis upon which they argue. The role of women in the church, we think it's fine. Some might say to have a lady as an elder or perhaps as a preacher. Y'all just happen to see it that that's not true, but we don't see it that way. And after all, didn't Paul say that in Christ there is neither male nor female? Galatians 3.28. You begin to see the idea. If we slip into relativism... If we allow ourselves to fall into prey of that, we seemingly can very quickly do away with any doctrine of the Bible we want to and just fall back on whatever we prefer. That kind of danger will lead us to the remainder of the lesson tonight. Because I would ask, as I began to think about ways to consider this or develop the lesson, I chose to do it like this. I thought we would take a look at the various ages of time and ask if it has ever been the case that God has respected relativism. We'll start in the early pages of the Bible back in the books of Genesis. Did God respect relativism in the patriarchal age? There was an age in time in which God directly spoke to the fathers and that was that age we call the patriarchal one. Did God respect relativism then? Consider with me the saga of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. God gave to them a commandment of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat except the tree in the midst of the garden thou mayest not eat of it. Genesis 2 verses 15 and following. And we remember why. He said, In the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. A pronouncement of death if they were partake of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's a straightforward commandment and it was one that both of them understood. In fact, as chapter 3 opened when the subtle serpent entered into conversation with Eve, she exactly quoted what God had said. It was not a matter of misunderstanding. You remember what developed, however. 
Satan approached Eve. She partook of the fruit. She ate of it. She gave to Adam. He ate of it as well. And then God came walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And you may remember they hid themselves. They were now ashamed. They tried to cover up their nakedness by making supposedly acceptable and adequate garments. And we will remember that God asked, Adam, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you you should not eat of it? The very first thing Adam said, the woman that you made, she gave to me and I ate. Adam tried to shift the blame over to the woman. He tried. God then addressed the woman. You may remember that she said, the serpent gave to me and I did eat. She tried to shift the blame to the serpent. You might forever remember that God did not accept the shifting of the blame, did He? God addressed Adam and punished him. God addressed Eve and punished her. God addressed the serpent and punished it. And every one of them received the just reward of their disobedience. Might we notice what was not said, what was not said by any of them. But Adam should have said, Maybe I thought it was perfectly fine to eat of that forbidden fruit. God, that's just your opinion that I shouldn't eat of it. What about the way I thought? After all, it looked good to eat, and it looked great to the taste, and it was in fact that which the serpent promised Eve would make me wise. But on every one of those occasions, we seemingly don't see any argumentation on the part of Adam or Eve at all, at least with regard to that. Doesn't seem like relativism had much of a stance at that time, did it? What if you roll forward with me to the scene of Genesis chapter 4? On that occasion, it was Cain and Abel. God had given the specifics relative to what was to be done. A sacrifice was to be brought. And we remember that Cain, we well remember, brought, of course, of the fruit of the ground. Abel, his brother, brought, however, of the flock. God had respect to what Abel brought. He did not have respect to what Cain did. As the Hebrew writer will later provide commentary on that idea, Abel brought his gifts and they testified of his faith. You might notice on this occasion, Cain ultimately killed his brother. But think with me for a moment about the sacrifice and about the offering, the worship, if you please. Here was a worship that Cain offered and God was not pleased with it. Relativism would say, worship however you like and God will enjoy it as long as your heart is sincere in it. It didn't work for Cain. God did not have respect to Cain's offering. Forevermore, that thunderously says that all worship is not acceptable. Whatever is done, God has not promised to accept it, has He? Might we give some passing thought to the last example of this patriarchal age, that scene surrounding the days of Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Memorable, wasn't it, in Genesis 19? Here we have a city, and it seems how interesting and how noteworthy that is in light of that which you and I face today. That sin was a number of the sins that, that they were guilty of. Later in the book of Ezekiel, we learn that Sodom and Gomorrah were guilty of many things. Homosexuality was one of them, admittedly. But they were guilty of many things, and yet as that chapter unfolds, here was a group of people. So enamored were they with the guests that came into the city that night, those angelic visitors, that they wanted Lot to bring them out so that they could know them sexually. 
Lot understood the perverseness of such and begged with them, implored them, don't do this thing. But they would have none of it. They came and pounded on the door and in fact besought Lot to bring out the visitors. Finally, those angelic visitors struck the men of the city with blindness and God rained fire and brimstone on it not long thereafter. You and I recognize so well that that was a style of life that some in Sodom and Gomorrah were choosing to follow. Question, was it just as acceptable to God as any other? Apparently it wasn't, for God destroyed them. We live in an age and a time when the ascendancy is being gained so notably by that movement. We have those in Washington and other places who defend it openly and aggressively, sometimes even violently. You and I know God will never approve of it. His word all throughout it from Old Testament into New shouts so loudly, this is unnatural. It is that which is perverse and it is that which will reap His eternal condemnation. May we appreciate immediately just because some would like to say, this is what I want to do. You choose to be heterosexual, I choose not to be. God will accept us all. That isn't true. Although you and I know so easily and so well that those thoughts may fill the minds of men in the patriarchal age, God would not have it. Relativism didn't work then. As you close that particular section, may we then at least say, we seemingly find no evidence for God's respect of relativism in the patriarchal age of time. Why don't we come to the Mosaic Age for a moment? That began in Exodus chapter 20. When God gave that set of laws to the Jewish people, those who were the descendants of Abraham through Jacob, these individuals who in fact for 1,500 years would serve beneath that law, might we ask, did it respect relativism? Did God in that law say, do whatever you like and I'll be happy with it? Let's see. I would ask you to develop it like this. I've only selected a few. It may be your mind has raced to many additional ones. What about the keeping of the Sabbath? The Sabbath was Saturday, the seventh day of the week. You and I noticed that was one day out of seven, of course. Might we remember, God did say with respect to that day, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. They weren't to do any work that day. It was to be a matter of great respect on their part to understand it as a day of solemn assembly, a day of convocation, a day of respecting that which was the matter of godliness. No work that day in a servile fashion. However, in Numbers chapter 15, there was a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath, picking up sticks. Seems innocent enough. Do you suppose he could have argued, but I needed these sticks in order for the safeguarding of my family. I was going to use them perhaps tomorrow to build a fire. I wasn't going to use them now today, you understand. God said, put that man to death. He violated the very law I gave. I said, no work on the Sabbath. It doesn't matter why. And so it was that that man was stoned without the camp. Doesn't it seemingly start, startle our mind to reflect on the directness with which God did not respect relativism? Look at another example, the matter of worship. Now let's observe the following. We know that those priests were in fact to have fire in their censers and they were thus to burn incense on it. 
Did it matter how the fire came about? Light a match if they had had it. Use a magnifying glass if they had had it. It mattered. That fire was to not be a strange fire. And when Nadab and Abihu lit their censers, perhaps like had been done many times in the past properly, all they did different was use fire that he hadn't commanded them. They died that day. They violated God's law. They transgressed it because he hadn't authorized that fire. God respects what he authorizes and that eliminates relativism. We've seen so far in that Mosaic age, gathering of sticks because it violated the Sabbath. And now we've seen it even in the matter of worship. That worship was to be as God had directed it. I've asked you to consider yet one final example in this Mosaic age of time. Something as simple as the handling of the Ark of the Covenant. God had told specifically to the family of Kohath, the Kohathites were the ones commanded of God to handle the Ark that precious Ark of the Covenant that contained, of course, several items, not the least of which was the golden pot of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the circumstances surrounding the very tables upon which God's finger had written the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. The time came when that Ark had been confiscated, or perhaps I should say captured by the Philistines, and it remained in their territory for seven long months. When we recognize the scene in 1 Chronicles 13, that David became king and the ark, now it was ready to be positioned in a location, in a place in which it could be respected so highly, the capital city. They loaded upon a cart. Uzzah, who himself was not authorized to touch it, he was not of the Kohathite family apparently. Uzzah died when he reached out and touched it. He didn't have an interest in opening it to see what was inside. He didn't have an interest in otherwise taking it to his house to use it as a personal piece of furniture. Uzzah simply wanted to steady it so that the stumbling oxen wouldn't cause it to be damaged. It didn't matter. Uzzah was given no opportunity to offer a reason. But God, I thought, but God, I presumed, but God, I supposed, it didn't matter. God's Word was absolute just the way He had given it. And that meant it was off limits for us to do what He did. May I submit as we close that particular saga, we apparently find no reason for assuming there was any relativism in the Mosaic Age either. It wasn't that everybody's opinion was equally valid. It wasn't that all perspectives were equally appropriate. I'm sure, though, we're all of interest. What about coming to the Christian age of time, the age in which you and I live today? What about the relativism in our current age? Let's use this slide to develop that one. I'm sure we're in position to appreciate that the New Testament has much to say about this. I've selected a few passages. We're going to use one of them that was read as the lesson text this evening. The other one to which I would turn your attention, though, we're going to consider first. In the fourth verse of 1 Timothy 2, Paul in those writings and in that letter directed to Timothy, that young son in the faith of his, Paul had these words to say, that God would have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. 
Please rehearse that with your mind with me just a moment. God would have all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth. Let's develop that as we look at these words. First, that word that appears in that passage, the knowledge of the truth. That word literally means precise and correct knowledge. But beyond that, you might notice the word truth. Paul did say, didn't he, that God would have all men to be saved and to come to what? A knowledge of the truth. Paul directly and seemingly with such ease identified truth, and he said it like this, using a word that means what is true in any matter. The knowledge of the truth. You'll notice that in that, Paul said that all men would come unto this. This is not something that's automatically going to be true of every man. Not every man will abide by that. Not every man has the proper knowledge. But Paul was of the position to say that God wants all men to come to understand and know this truth. That means there are some perspectives that are not acceptable. Some understandings that are not correct. Paul devoted his life as a preacher, didn't he, to disseminating that which was the truth of God. How often did he correct individuals who did have misunderstandings? And how often did he correct those whose perspective was a bit misguided to come into the knowledge of the truth? One of the things so wonderfully beautiful about that little one-chapter book of 2 John, it is a very brief book, isn't it? Nestled near the end of the New Testament. The Apostle John several times in the opening four verses of that book highlights the truth. I'm thankful your children walk in the truth. That statement is so beautiful and wonderful. John recognized immediately that there was a family, a woman who was guiding her children in such a way that they proceeded to walk in truth. Others didn't do that. Others were walking apart from it. Not everyone's perspective is acceptable in terms of what is pleasing to God. Maybe it is with that in mind, let's develop it with this other passage. It was read earlier this evening in our hearing as the lesson text. It is a brief passage. It's probably one we've etched in our thinking so often. Jesus Himself said, Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Ye shall know the truth. There are several things that you and I can readily conclude, but here are some of them. First, the word know that Jesus used. Now, there are those in our day and time that may argue there are different levels of knowledge. Some might appreciate it better or more acutely than others. Let's let Jesus identify what word He used. The word know, it means to understand, to perceive. It means to know. In other words, there can be no doubt left. I can understand this fully in every way that God has delivered it. There are those in our day of the agnostic persuasion. They are under the impression that there is no way for any human being to fully know the fullness of a specific doctrine or teaching or matter. It must be left in the realm of gray at best. They just say, I don't know. I can't know. Jesus said you can know. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Those of that persuasion, that agnostic persuasion, are completely misguided on that point. You and I can know the truth. Now, there are those in our world that may not like what it says, but that's a different story altogether, isn't it? 
ye shall know the truth. God's Word is that truth because absolute truth does exist. And every culture on earth is susceptible to it. Those living on the outskirts of Africa, those in the desert regions of Australia, those in the southeastern United States, all of us are amenable to the same truth. That's very comforting in a way, isn't it? For that means that there's no one who has, if you please, some advantage to get to heaven. God, Christ died for all of us. And that same truth is the very same demands He makes on one and all, isn't it? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I've asked you to notice a number of passages. As you and I look at that extensive listing that I have given at the bottom of that slide. Passages that might well begin like this one. The 143rd verse of the 119th Psalm, the longest chapter in the Old Testament. The psalmist on that occasion highlighted the marvelous truth that is God's Word and encouraged those of that day to appreciate it. After all, one verse previous, verse 142, God's law is the truth. But beyond that, John 17, verse number 17, in the very shadow principally of the cross, it wasn't many hours before Christ was nailed to it at that point, and that very night, we remember the Savior Himself as He prayed so earnestly and fervently. First, for those apostles, praying for them and praying for their faithfulness. And then He turned His attention to, of course, praying for all that would believe upon Him through their Word. But in verse 17, that marvelous statement, Sanctify them through Thy truth. Thy Word is truth. Isn't it true that only two chapters, or rather one chapter later in John 18, verses 35 and 36, Pilate asked that great question, what is truth? Jesus, in fact, did He not say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He had said that not many chapters earlier in John 14, 6. There is truth to be appreciated and Christ Jesus is the center of it. That truth that you and I have learned so far this evening seems to crush beneath foot the nature of any relativism. He said, there is no interest to heaven apart from Him. Now, does that sound like every viewpoint is equally valid? Does that sound like every perspective is equally appropriate? Of course not. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man, regardless of sincerity, regardless of perspective, Regardless of viewpoint, no man cometh unto the Father but by me. That is an exclusive and narrow roadway, isn't it? You'll notice beyond that I would ask you to consider and what a very penetrating passage it is in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 21. The Thessalonian congregation themselves were bothered by various teachings which had upset the brethren on the, in that city and location. What was it that Paul said to them? He said... Prove all things, hold to that which is good. The Thessalonians were told, you're going to face teaching from some that's not true. You prove it and you grasp and you hold on to and you cleave to what's good. This perspective then that some hold to, that every viewpoint's equally valid, is absolutely false based on the Bible. There are those who always seemingly have taught what's not right. I would ask you at this point to consider a passage I'll insert in that location. 
It is the passage, of course, found in 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 1. It is on that occasion that as Peter addresses some falsehood that was being propagated at the time, he said, but there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privately shall bring in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and shall bring upon themselves swift destruction. Peter said it once and for all, didn't he? There's going to be falsehood running rampant. You must be aware of it. Much of it will be based on relative, relative thinking. Don't you believe it to be true for a minute? As you continue along that list, let's jump forward to look at that text in Romans 16, 17. Paul admonished those in Rome to appreciate this. Mark them which cause divisions contrary to the word and avoid them. There will be those to cause divisions contrary to what? To the Word. We have a pattern, an exclusive pattern to go by. A pattern that is safe and a pattern that's true and a pattern that's from God. May we say as we close that slide, I would use that to highlight this. There's no relativism today either. We hope that those individuals who have been of that disposition, they'll understand that Christ didn't die in such a way that all can do whatever they want and still make it to heaven. Christ died and He purchased the church. And in that purchase, He set forth His last will and testament to borrow the wording of Hebrews 9, verses 16 and 17. And with that setting forth of that last will and testament, that now has been put into effect. May you and I heed it and not give thought to personal preference or personal supposition, but recognize that's not a valid way of thinking. This conclusion page that closes this particular lesson tonight highlights the fact that we shall, it would appear, face some serious problems in the years that come ahead of us. Problems that in no small way will relate to relativism. Many who will think, well, you just see it your narrow-minded fundamentalist way. I see it more open, more contemporarily, and more progressive, and we'll both be fine. That isn't so. As often as we've stated it, when it comes to human opinion, sure, everybody stands just as valuable as anybody else. But when it comes to a thus saith the Lord, there can be no compromise. There can be no negotiation. For His way means there is no relativism. There is but one way to heaven. Are you traveling it tonight? Am I? Are we walking that way that Jesus Himself stated in Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14 is like this? Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Did you notice? Many are traveling that way, this wide way that's easy to travel. But then he said, there is a straight way. That way, in verse number 14, is a way that few are traveling. You and I need to be in the minority religiously. If we're not, we're in the wrong spot. If you're not in the minority walking that straight and narrow way that leads to everlasting life, I pray and I urge you to think with care about your current situation. The church was established by the Lord Himself, but buying it with His blood, and He wants you to be a part of it. The kingdom that is saved by His blood, Ephesians 5.23. If tonight we could be of assistance to you, maybe you've never become a Christian. Maybe you have been misguided by the thoughts of relativism. Don't allow that to rest on your mind any longer.
Revelation 22.14 says that heaven waits for those that obey Him. And if you haven't done that, why not come down this aisle tonight? We'd be happy to take your confession to assist you in baptism. But if you have become a faithful New Testament Christian, but maybe you have become unfaithful, you have apostatized, you need to come back to your first love. 1 John 1 verse 7 says that His blood will still cleanse you, but you need to make a repentance and you need to confess, and you need to allow us to pray with you, and we'll do that tonight. Brother Adam has chosen this song of encouragement. If we could be of help to you, we would choose this moment as a convenient time to do that. Why not come now while together we stand and while we sing?